You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, and welcome to Lab Notes. My name is Leo Stevens, and today you and I will be diving into a story of reinvention. In the late 1980s, Richard Dale was a fresh-faced graduate who had just emerged from the engineering program at the University of Western Australia. He was soon snapped up by a fast-growing spin-out company called Asset Limited, whose suite of world-class infrastructure management products seemed to ensure that Richard had joined one of the computing revolution's emerging success stories. But all was not as it appeared. And as the financial cracks began to appear in asset, our young engineer could only watch in horror as the company collapsed around him with remarkable speed. This event was a watershed moment in Richard Dale's career. And if we fast forward to the present day, you won't find Richard Dale programming software, but rather as one of the most prominent early stage investors and startup advisors in Sydney. But how Richard went from disappointed engineer to leading advisor is a story best told by the man himself. Richard Dale, welcome to Lab Notes. Yeah, hi, Leo. Thanks for inviting me. So we usually begin with a bit of an elevator pitch about your current role, but I think you're wearing about five hats at the moment, so I might have to rephrase the question for you. If you're at a party and you meet someone new, how do you introduce yourself and what you do? Uh, I, I normally say that I, I help technology companies grow and find the uh, the funding and partners that they need. And then I, then I wait to see if they go, aha, uh-huh, and then move on because they don't understand that stuff. Or on the other hand, they're either very interested and they start peppering me with questions and then I go into more detail. I have one of those portfolio type of uh, careers, which um, it's very hard to condense into a soundbite. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully we'll cover enough of that portfolio for our listeners to get a true sense of you, Richard. But can I start with one of your roles and the, I guess your namesake one? You, you are founder and proprietor of Dale Advisors. Can you tell us about that particular company and I guess what work you do through that entity? Uh, well, Dale Advisors is my own little boutique, um, which allows me to you know, be an independent advisor and to take on projects that I find interesting. Uh, what uh, Dell Advisors sells is the tagline I use is strategy and funding solutions uh, with a particular focus on technology companies that are beyond startup but have an opportunity to um, grow into much larger companies given the right strategy, good execution and the right funding and partners. So I focus on trying to find interesting Australian companies that have their own innovative technology large market opportunities and are typically at the point where they're looking to either move into overseas markets or move from one-off sales to a more systematic growth model and um, that may involve them needing to raise somewhere between two and ten million dollars of equity capital yeah that's my i guess that's my core but i do i do other things either side of that um, my involvement with sydney angels which we can talk about more uh, I, i'm also involved with another boutique called Campus Plus, which focuses on um, universities and in particular commercialization out of universities, uh, researcher engagement, um, uh, industry engagement, and uh, things like spin-outs. Uh, my particular focus there is on uh, spin-outs. 
Well, as it happens, Richard, I think our audience could be familiar with Campus Plus because a very recent guest on the show was Nick McNaughton, who's the founder there. <laughs> well, well, Nick and I are old, uh, old colleagues. Uh, we, we work together very well and uh, know each other very well. Well, I think there's a good chance we'll circle back to Campus Plus late in the interview, Richard. But for now, can we circle back to your personal history? I mean, you've been back and forth to England a few times during your career, but I know you're actually born there. What can you tell us about your early life in England and how you came to be in Australia in the first place? Uh, well, that's that's a fairly short story because um, in England in the 1970 period, um, you had a lot of um, economic decline in the north of England. Uh, my family hails from a, a place called Wallasey, which is over the Mersey from Liverpool, and the Liverpool docks area uh, was going through a fairly dramatic decline with the uh, decline of the British Empire and therefore reduced role for international trading ports like Liverpool. And um, yeah, they were looking for greener pastures, so uh, they decided to emigrate um, and uh, didn't really have a fixed plan. Got on a boat that could have gotten off in South Africa, didn't, um, and we ended up disembarking in Perth, and that's where I grew up. And I guess from our current vantage point, we know you went on to do engineering and later business. Were there any teachers or family influences that pushed you in those directions as you were growing up in Western Australia? <laughs> No, not at all. Ever since I was very young, I'd been interested in science and technology and space. Uh, my, my most vivid memory as a young child was uh, when I was four, watching Neil Armstrong step onto the moon in 1969. And um, yeah, so I've always been interested in, in you know, space and technology. And, uh, uh, you know, as I was growing up, my bedroom, my bedroom was variously a chemistry lab and an electronics lab. Uh, you know, I used to tinker around and built built my first two cars from wrecks and bits and pieces. And when it came to choosing a what what I was going to do after high school, um, uh, there were there were much fewer options in those days. Um, and so basically, your typical choices were medicine, engineering, law, commerce, or science. Um, and I, by a process of elimination, I worked out that I didn't really want to do medicine because I'd be crap as a doctor because I I don't have enough empathy. Um, I, I just had this natural aversion to lawyers, so I didn't want to do law. I didn't know what commerce was. Um, science sounded interesting, but engineering sounded more practical, so I opted for engineering. And uh, not much more thought went into it than that. <laughs> well, let's talk about that early university experience now, because you were studying a particular blend of computer science and robotics that was quite new at the time. It's something that we might now call mechatronic engineering. I mean, this was quite a, a new field at the time. What are your memories of what it was like being a mechatronic engineer before the phrase existed? Um, you kind of had to do everything. In, that, in those days, there was no internet. So you had to develop the complete technology stack yourself, which would include elements which were mechanical, elements which were electronic, and, and also the software in between. So um, yeah, we were doing, I guess we were doing full stack stuff before full stack was even a word. It's interesting to hear about your, your passion for science and engineering and obviously the fact that you studied engineering at university because you seem to have gravitated back to law and business and commerce over the course of your career. How do you explain that shift in interest? There's a good reason for that, Leo. My first job as a graduate engineer was I actually joined a, a company which had uh, just a couple of years earlier spun out from my university. I joined them when you know, they were working out of a, basically a large house in suburban Perth. Uh, I was employee number 13. 
and uh, one year later the company IPO'd. Grew to a total staff of something like 130, I think, at its peak. So that was over a course of four years. And then we hit a cash flow problem. Think, you know, the wheels started to gradually fall off. Uh, you know, we, had to, we had good products, we had big customers, we had lots of contracts, uh, but we just had a, um, a fundamental financing problem, which stuff which I didn't understand back then. I was a pure technologist back then. I, I think there was only one finance business person in the whole company. Everyone else was an engineer or a scientist. Yeah, so the lesson I learned from that was uh, good technology uh, is not enough for commercial success. And I was, um, I was quite aggrieved when the company went into administration and I had a few shares and had some superannuation. All of that got wiped out. And um, yeah, I wanted to uh, understand what went wrong. So if me and a few of my colleagues uh, all went off and uh, by various paths, I uh, wanted to um, learn about business. And uh, it, was in that, it was at that time in 1999 when I first heard the word venture capital. So to round out this part of Richard's story, the company he had joined was a firm called Asset Limited, a promising university spin-out based on asset management systems originally developed to prevent derailments on the major private railways of Western Australia. Despite having applications across a swathe of heavy industries from mining to the smart electricity grid, the team's fixation on engineering excellence over financial prudence ultimately derailed the company itself. For Richard, this was a seminal moment, one that shifted his personal focus away from engineering and towards the funding sources and business models that make commercial R&D possible in the first place. Canny enough to know that the answer to this puzzle may lay in one of the global centres of finance, Richard found himself in London with a fresh challenge. So I was determined to go and find out what venture capital was all about. That was my um, uh, my motivation. I then looked at ways to do that and looked at options for going to the US, looked at the INSEAD in France, looked at London Business School in the UK. And when I weighed everything up, uh, the best option for me personally was London Business School because it gave me um, a base in a, in a country where I had uh, dual citizenship, which meant I could work if I needed to. Uh, there was a family connection. And um, they had a very, at that time, they were, they, they were very innovative as a business school. They had a very flexible MBA program, which allowed you to do it part-time, which most schools at that time didn't offer, uh, and also allowed you to uh, opt to be part of the executive stream as opposed to the full-time student stream. So I opted to go, go into the executive stream, which meant I was working primarily with students who were much older than me and much more experienced. I was learning a lot from them and also allowed me to uh, develop my experience in some uh, new areas. So I, I got myself a job as a deal scout for Electra Invertech. They were running a VC fund as well as a corporate venture fund for British Gas. And my job was to go and find deals for them. So I spent a lot of time trying to um, uh, spin out technologies from research labs in, in the UK and Europe. Uh, it, was, it was very high risk, right? Because I, I didn't have a lot of money at the time. You know, I, I had enough money to last maybe 12 months in, in the UK. Uh, so it was, the whole thing was contingent on having gainful employment while I was there as well. So yeah, I set a few hurdles for myself. But through Electra Invertech, they introduced me to KPMG because KPMG was one of their advisors. And after I finished my project with Electra Invertech, I got involved with KPMG in, the, in their management consulting area. Uh, it was called their Science and Technology Consulting Group or something like that. Their clients were UK universities, science parks, corporate research labs. 
and associated with that group there's also a telecoms practice which was doing all of the the wave of mobile licensing and telecoms network privatizations that were happening in europe and other parts of the world at that time so i got involved in quite a lot of projects and uh, started to learn about well what consulting is because i'd never done consulting before um but also blending technology with uh, with business and speaking of this period of heavy consulting richard I think one of the advantages of being a consultant is you get to pass your eyes over quite a lot of businesses, some fantastic, some not so great, but developing a bit of a personal lived experience about what makes a good business and a bad one. To what extent do you think this period has shaped how you now work as an advisor and an investor in early stage tech companies? Um, well, the more you see, the more you know. If you were, if you were training a robot to do something, <laughs> You'd want to give it lots of lots and lots of data, right? Um, so yeah, seeing lots of examples of uh, both different applications of you know technology to business, different ways of running businesses, different ways that teams work, different different management styles, uh, different ways of financing things, different outcomes, both good and bad. All of that stuff it becomes data that you draw on and a source of ideas, and uh, you, you start to see patterns patterns which you think are good patterns and patterns which you think are dangerous patterns and uh, to this day I, I still see you know I still see lots and lots of things and I'm still learning uh, and uh, every time I find uh, new angles which I hadn't thought of before but also I tend to see patterns that come back and reinforce themselves and show that they are meaningful so that yeah the more you see the more you know and um, experience counts and uh, the key thing about consulting which I've learned Initially, I thought it was all about what you knew. I gradually, with the benefit of experience and a few failures, discovered that it's not, not so much what you know, it's more about the process that you develop for learning things and understanding things. That's what's important. So a lot of consulting is actually about the process that you use rather than the knowledge that you bring. Because you bring some knowledge, but it's probably not sufficient. You need more knowledge. And where's that knowledge reside? It resides in the heads of other people. So the trick is, what process am I going to use to bring all that knowledge to the table to turn it into something that helps us move forward with whatever it is we're trying to do? Well, perhaps that's a good place to wrap up the discussion of the London portion of your career, because around the mid-1990s, you did move back to Australia, not to Perth where you grew up, but rather to Sydney. And you joined a company called Booze & Co, which became the longest tenure that you had as an employee at any company. What drew you to Sydney and to Booz & Co as a company? Uh, well, once again, fairly simple logic. Um, I knew by then that the things I wanted to do, I wasn't going to be able to do them anywhere else but in another world city. Uh, and the personal reason, um, uh, before I left Australia, uh, I got engaged, my fiance came with me, and the deal was that she would help to support me in, in, in England, uh, provided that we went back to live in Sydney where she was from. So um, uh, th those two forces together uh, drove me there. At the time, there was four top-tier management consulting firms. You had McKinsey, you had BCG, you had Bain, and you had Booz. Uh, I interviewed for Booz while I was in London. I was doing that while I was still in, in the business school MBA program. I wanted to you know, finish my MBA studies and disengage from my work in London and just have some time off to enjoy myself because I've been working pretty hard for three years and I hadn't really enjoyed Europe as, as much as I would have liked to because I hadn't had much time. So getting a good job offer locked away with booze in, in the middle of 93 before I came back 
meant I could spend the rest of the year doing whatever I liked, which I did. And I was recruited primarily because I'd been doing work with this telecoms practice in KPMG in London. And, and the booze partner who was interviewing me, he was trying to build up a telecoms practice for booze at the time. So he was uh, interested in buying in some, um, I guess, some experienced people who had could, who could bring some telecoms consulting experience uh, directly into his practice. So here you are, you're back in Sydney and you're working in a consulting firm again, I guess initially focused on the telecommunication space, but eventually spreading out into other technology ventures as well. But ultimately you transition into the venture capital world, which is what you had always hoped to do. What was the trigger for moving from consultancy in Sydney to venture capital in Sydney? Uh, so I, I was uh, at the time in, the, you know, you, you might recall in the late 90s, that was the tech boom, the first internet boom. And um, I was in booze doing all this corporate strategy consulting and the tech boom was happening around and I kept on saying to myself, uh, this isn't really the plan. The plan was to be in VC. What am I, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, and at the same time, I was coming up to a promotion point in booze and it's an up and out firm and the firm and I disagreed on when I, when I should be promoted. So I was encouraged to maybe leave and explore my other options, which I did. And um, I got a job as uh, investment director at uh, Amwin, a product of one of the government's uh, venture capital industry programs. Uh, so it was an innovation investment fund. One third of the money in the fund was from the government and two thirds were from private. It had its own management company, but the management company was really a subsidiary of what was then called Australian Mezzanine, which was Bill Ferris and Joe Skrinsky's venture capital company, one of the uh, pioneer venture capital firms in Australia. And um, the Amwin Fund, which is primarily a technology fund, so investing in some of the those early internet pioneers. One of their investees was a company called LookSmart, which you might remember was very successful for a little while until they got steamrolled by Google. That was my first uh, you know, real hands-on experience as, as a VC. And as you mentioned, these were some of the pioneering VC funds in Australia. The industry at that time was quite nascent. What is your experience of the changes that have occurred since the late 90s through to how the Australian investment ecosystem is today? Uh, it was a very, it was a completely different environment back then. Uh, if you were a founder trying to start a business in Australia then, uh, literally there was half a dozen firms you could go to and that was about it. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I and some colleagues who, like me, were doing uh, their own thing in the venture advisory space in that sort of, you know, tech, tech wreck period the desert years, as I call them, um, was that we kept on getting approached by startups who wanted help, but they had no money. And so our model was a fee-for-service model that we couldn't really help them. Uh, and we decided that we needed to create a place where they could um, find investors who would, who would actually invest in startups. So we, we created Sydney Angels. So in 2008, Richard Dale and his colleagues from the Australian Venture Advisory Space realised there was a massive need in the market for support for early stage startups, support that was well established in countries like the US, but sadly lacking in the Australian ecosystem. Almost from day one, Sydney Angels became a cornerstone of the early stage investment ecosystem in Australia, not only supporting early stage startups, but also the angel investors themselves, as many of them were investing for the very first time. And the most incredible part about this success story is that it happened in spite of the fact that Sydney Angels was launched in the middle of the global financial crisis. 
I asked Richard to reflect on this inauspicious timing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was yeah, in August 2008, you had peak GFC fear, right? <laughs> We'd started planning Sydney Angels in February uh, and we were, we were planning our launch in um, September 2008. <laughs> um, and people told us, uh, not a good time, guys. And, I said, and we said, well, you know what? Our sense is a lot of people uh, have got time on their hands right now because people were losing their jobs and had time on their hands. It might be a good time, in fact. And um, and and so so it proved. Um, you know, we had uh, we had a lot of support in that uh, in that first year. And how did the first group of investors come together? I mean, you said you were part of the venture advisory space, but clearly there's going to be a lot of trust and camaraderie that has to build among this group. What brought you guys together? Um, pure serendipity. There was like a national industry association called the Australian Association of Angel Investors, which I didn't know anything about, but I heard they were having this conference in Canberra in November or December uh, 2007, national conference. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I should go to that. So, so, uh, so I did. And I was amazed to learn at that conference that every capital city in Australia, except for Sydney, uh, had this organised angel investment group you know you, you had melbourne angels brisbane angels two angel groups in adelaide and myself and a couple of other random people from sydney were there at the conference and we go wow how come sydney doesn't have one of these things so uh, that was the uh, that was the inspiration and we started talking uh, we didn't we kind of met each other around the circuit in sydney but uh, we hadn't done anything together before and at the conference we just started talking and and uh, my my good friend Vivian Stewart was uh, very keen to to do this, and he started uh, roping people in. So you know, myself and a few other people uh, became the uh, you know the co-founders of um, Sydney Angels. So many new institutions tend to start off quite small and informal. What are your memories of the first meetings or the first deals that Sydney Angels had? Can you paint a picture for what the organisation looked like at that time? Uh, well, Sydney Annals was a whiteboard concept in February 2008. We had our first meeting in November 2008, so we'd spent that year, you know, getting the model worked out, building support, planning a launch, uh, getting getting people motivated. And we had our first deal meeting in November uh, 2008. We had one company pitch. <laughs> it was it was a company that I introduced, um, a company called Hungry Giant, and um, it got invested. First meeting, <laughs> so that was good. <laughs> and, and in those in those days, we were having the meetings at the uh, at the Union Club in in Sydney, which was a very a baroque environment. If you've ever been in there, uh, the meetings were quite small. You know, we typically have maybe thirty people in the room, and uh, yeah, we started to get some interesting people joining as members. Uh, you're going to ask me about the early deals and portfolio. Um, I'll tell you the one that's memorable because it's contemporary and topical is. Um, at Clarity Pharmaceuticals, because uh, they first pitched to Sydney Angels, I think it was in 2010, and uh, it was at the Union Club, and you know, once again a fairly small intimate meeting, and a couple of Sydney Angels members invested, and uh, it's memorable because what they were then and what they've what they are today when they IPO'd in August this year, they've transformed tremendously over that time. Uh, watching that journey over the 11 years it's taken to get to that point. Uh, is uh, is fascinating. 
It's great to hear that success story, Richard, and particularly that it's a company that Sydney Angels has been supporting for you know over a decade now. And it brings up my next question, which is to do with the role of angels in these companies. Obviously, they get in at a fairly early stage. They provide this, this early funding that is critical, but they often then stick with the company as advisors and as directors for the long term. So what is your view of the role of angels as companies progress through their stages of growth? Uh, well, it, it's like a relay race. So angel investors or any early investors in the company, um, the most dangerous time in a company's life is going to be in its first year post-investment. And so whatever you can do in that period of time, over and above whatever money you've put in, is to uh, you know, help the founders navigate that first year. Because if you're ever going to provide advice and mentoring and support, it's probably going to have its greatest impact at that point. Because as the company grows up and as a team in the company builds and professionalizes the you know the impact of mentoring and advisors becomes less and less but in that first year that impact can be quite dramatic both both good and bad it can be good a good impact where it's given and it's uh, it helps the company uh, make better decisions and uh, bad if it's not given and therefore the you know the founders may stumble we see examples of both all the time you know companies which are uh, which are well supported by the investors and companies which are you know which could have done with more support from their investors you know beyond the money. So the key thing for any early stage investor is to you know provide more than money, whether it's advice, whether it's with mentoring, whether it's connections, business introductions, acting as a sounding board, or just as a companion, someone for the founders to talk to uh, is uh, is important. And it's probably worth mentioning at this juncture, Richard, that Sydney Angels actually is quite active at making sure this occurs. So as well as you know providing funding for early stage startups, Sydney Angels actually runs training programs for the angels themselves, helping them to develop skill sets and understanding around how to be a good angel investor. I just want to know how much of an influence you think that has had on helping the Australian ecosystem to mature over the last 10 or 15 years. Well, I think a lot of people have passed through Sydney Angels as members and been exposed to our processes and training. Um, there'd probably be over, you know, close to 500 people who've one time or another been a member of Sydney Angels. So I, I hope that what that, what that's done is maybe, you know, shared some of some knowledge and experience around. And um, some of those people have gone on to do their own VC funds. Some of them gone on to become an entrepreneur themselves and launch a new business. Um, so from the point of view of building, making a contribution to building a supportive ecosystem. Uh, I think that's um, that's had an impact. Also, it's always been a um, a view that I personally held, and I think others in Sydney Angels would agree, is that if you can help people become more successful as, as investors, it will increase confidence and attract more people into this space because so many people have been burnt um, and, and the well has been poisoned so many times by either promoters promoting crap companies or um, investors being gullible and naive and not understanding what they're investing in or not following appropriate risk mitigations like doing due diligence and so forth. That makes it harder for the next generation of startups to get funded. So what Sydney Angels is about and what I'm personally about is trying to ensure that good companies get funded and bad companies are sorted out early. Because what you don't want is you don't want the supply side on, on the investor side getting burnt because you need that capacity to fund the good ones. So helping the investors be more successful is part of creating a sustainable ecosystem. And, and Richard, I mean, if it's possible, it might be worth trying to rehash a little about what you teach in these programs. 
What are the key messages that angel investors need to know as they're starting out in this space? Uh, well, it's it, whether they're angel investors or VCs or any other investor in you know early, early or unlisted businesses, the main things that we try to teach are the first thing is you need to have a, a sense of relativities or benchmarks. So you need to see a number of deals before you understand what a good deal looks like. So a good way to do that is to be part of a group like City Angels where you get to see lots of deals and you get to hear other people's opinions about those deals. And benefiting from other people's experience helps. It gives you a um, accelerate your own learning curve. And then, then the other key thing is sensible process. So there's there's no there's no rocket science about this. Uh, everyone knows that yeah you know, the number of companies that should get invested is much less than the number of companies that actually are seeking investment. So it it is a numbers game. And then you need to have a process for dealing with the ones that look really interesting. How do you validate that what caught your attention and interest? is actually real. So it's having an understanding of what a an effective and efficient due diligence process looks like. And then recognizing that that can become a lot of work. So how, how can you reduce the work? And one of the ways you can reduce the work is to share the work with others, whether they're co-investors or whether they're members of a syndicate as we run in Sydney Angels, dividing up the work, sharing the knowledge. Everyone knows something and everyone knows different things, but if you put all that together, you get a much more holistic understanding of the you know the merits and and risks in a in a business than if you're just doing it from your own limited perspective. And um, those are the key things that we try to uh, promote at Sydney Angels. But they're not unique to Sydney Angels; they're generically true. Um, you know, in in early stage companies, co-investors or people looking at a firm at the same time shouldn't see themselves as competitors because in most of these deals. The only thing you're competing for probably is the is the right to lose money. So you might as well share share that risk and um, share your knowledge to come to a better decision and also be more able to help the the company succeed because you each bring some additional value. The more that value goes into the company, the better. Thank you, Richard. And I think that's a really good spot to wrap up on the angel investment perspective of this deal. But if you don't mind, I'd also like to tap into the entrepreneur's perspective and particularly for research-based entrepreneurs because a lot of our audience falls into that category. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the process of transitioning technology out of fundamental research and into spin-up companies and into startups. Is there a, is there a stage of technological readiness or perhaps the, the level of competency in the team that you think is the right moment to make that jump out of research and into the startup ecosystem? Yeah, I think the key thing you have to establish is whether there is actually a large enough market or application for your research or whatever it is you've developed. The best and most important thing any researcher can do if they're interested to commercialize their research is identify the application or the use case which they think has a real commercial opportunity. And what defines that? Well, first of all, the technology actually has to work in a commercial setting. That can be hard to prove. It will require a little bit of money, but maybe not too much money. So getting some kind of proof that the, the, the technology can be made to work in a commercial setting uh, or customer's environment is invaluable. Because if you can if you can demonstrate that, then investors will take you more seriously because they'll say, well, okay, I can see that this thing could work. And then the other part of that is, does that application or does that that type of uh, customer represent a large market? 
And the third thing is, okay, is it better? And I don't just mean incrementally better, but much better than what they've what they can currently do, or what they've currently got access to, or what others are currently providing. If those three boxes can be ticked with some evidence, so not your opinion, some objective data, then you're in a good position to commercialise because you've provided the essence of, for a business case. Without all those three things, the business case either does not exist or, or is shaky. And I expect your answer to this next question might hit on a lot of similar themes, but how should that entrepreneur, that researcher, then prepare themselves to pitch for funding for their business? Uh, well, uh, first thing is uh, try to get those validations. Um, and, and when you have the validations, then pitch. So, um, and that's the chicken and egg problem, right? Because sometimes that validation requires money. So how do you get the money to get the validation? And so there are some grants around to help with that. And there are some investors who will, who will back things at the point where maybe some of those validations aren't there yet. Um, but there are many, many more investors willing to back once you've validated those three things, you know, size of market, competitive advantage or superior performance and uh, a proof that the technology has application. So Richard, we've come to the end of our time, but I do have one final question and it's one I've been asking all of the guests on this series so far. And it comes down to advice for young researchers or entrepreneurs. In your case, I might ask this as a bit of a retrospective because one of your earliest career experiences was with Asset Group, the spin-out company that failed due to cash flow issues. If you could take all of your modern understanding and learnings back to that time, what advice would you give the founders to ensure that business would succeed? Um, I think that Asset's problem, and the, look, there are lots of things I probably don't know about it, what was going on in Asset. I was only a, like a you know, relatively junior guy there. But um, I think basic things like getting an appropriate financing structure for the type of business that you are would be really important. We were running, I found out later, we were running effectively the whole company on a massive overdraft at called debt finance, <laughs> which is um, dangerous uh, when your revenue comes in, say, six monthly milestone payments. Simple things like having the right finance structure, the right um, financiers is important. Because although Asset was a listed company, just because you're a listed company doesn't mean you can raise capital because if the market's not interested in your shares, um, you can't raise capital that way. So you need to have an appropriate financing structure. That that was, I think that was lesson number one. And there's probably um, things like you know, planning, planning the, the marketing and sales strategy for the business and integrating that more with the, uh, uh, the product roadmap. That would have probably helped as well. Uh, but I think the main problem Asset had was a financing problem. Well, Richard, thanks so much for your time today and sharing the learnings you've had as an engineer turned financier in this industry. There's obviously a huge amount of experience there to be dug into. I'm sure we've only scratched the surface, but for now, that's all. Thank you so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep
keep inventing.